Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper on Sunday, March 14th. Yes. 2021. Right. It's cold again. It's cold. We had a couple of cold days after three or four extremely warm days and felt yes. like spring. Super spring. Except, yes. the, you know, the um, landscape was still rather bleak. Yeah, well, you get fixated on that. It was warm, it was comfortable, and now we changed the clocks. So Spring is on the way. I'm telling you, it's going to be very light You're at 6 o'clock, at 7 o'clock. It'll be warm in a week or two. We're on the way, Tamsin. Yes. Spring has sprung. Yeah. I think you're right. And, uh, you know, I should take a cue from you, the eternal optimist. Well, you're familiar with that poem, Spring has Sprung, uh, The Bird the grass is Autumn. has riz. I wonder where the flowers is. Well, the one I know is Spring has Sprung, uh, The Bird is on the Wing. But that's absurd. I thought the wing was on the bird. How yeah, about I think that it's one? the same poem. Yeah, probably. You? They sound like they belong together, those lines. But uh, in any event, uh, yeah. So, um, we did see a movie this week, which uh, we probably should talk about for just a minute. Uh, we saw Molly's Game, which is the 2017 uh, film, uh, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, starring Jessica Chastain and Kevin Costner, uh, which is the true story of a woman named Molly Bloom who ran a quasi-legal poker game in New York and L.A., some years before. Uh, and uh, what do you think? It was okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. was, it, was it a big success when it came out? It was a success, but it wasn't a big success. And okay. it was not. It was nominated for some things, but didn't win a lot of awards. Uh, it, it, to me, it's the perfect uh, definition of something that the uh, sum was not equal to the parts. Uh, in other words, you, you, there were a lot of things you could say that were good about the movie. It was well-written. It was interesting dialogue. Oh, Idris Elba's in the movie with Jessica Chastain. He's very good. And the two of them together have these great scenes, very snappy back-and-forth dialogue, really Aaron Sorkinese, if you will. Uh, so there are a lot of, there's a lot to say about it that's positive, but it doesn't cohere. Well, it's very long. It's too long. It takes you through her whole story. Right. From being a um, championship uh, skier who has a big accident, mm-hmm. uh, who just uh, ends up uh, in the world of poker right. and runs this game and makes zillions of dollars mm-hmm. and then has a downfall right. and uh, a kind of an interaction with the FBI. But it takes a long time to get there. Well, the thing is, it's that Sorkin never really figured out, I think, or at least the movie doesn't reflect that he ever figured out what the movie was about or what he meant to be saying. Because you could have done it straight as, this is a true story, isn't this kind of weird? That would have been fine, because when you make a movie like that, it sort of stands on its own. It's sort of reason for being really just telling a true story, and uh, that's the way it is. That's cool. But he clearly bends it a little bit. He invests some characters, a little fictional content, and he has to have a point. He has to have a moral. He has to have a theme. And he imposes all that. And when he imposes all that, he kind of loses you because a lot of the movie, which was just all the details, have nothing to do with the theme he ends up seeking to serve. Uh, So it doesn't cohere, really. So it's it's a little unsatisfying in that respect. Yeah, I didn't love Jessica Chastain, actually. Oh, really? No. I, you know what I think about Jessica Chastain? 
I think she probably did a very accurate portrayal of that woman. Yeah, but uh, maybe it was too accurate. I mean, there was just the, I don't know. Uh, I didn't uh, get uh, engaged with her at all. I wasn't all okay. that interested. I wasn't rooting for her. I wasn't, you know. Yeah. I mean, towards the end, you are kind of. Well, that, that's the you know, character. Once, uh, that's, the char- that's the character. I, th- I, I think because I, I somehow Sorkin wants to have a situation where you see this this character as, as very much uh, to be admired. That you're invested in, and I, and I think that's part of the problem with the movie. I don't know if that, if there, there's any there, there, there because yeah, I was not invested in right. her. What do uh, you think of Idris Elba? I thought he was great, and once he was on her side, I said, okay, you know, <laughs> let's help the girl out. Let's help the girl. But um, yeah. you know, uh, she just didn't. Uh, she, it's almost like she was playing it too straight or something. It, it right. Didn't didn't so engage I, I, me. We'd give it a B plus or something like that. Yeah, but if you like poker, you may enjoy it. Yeah, there's a lot of detail on poker that has really nothing to do with what the movie's about, ultimately. So, And there's some legal stuff at the end, which... Well, you can't have too much legal which stuff. Which you can't take too seriously. No, it was it was, it was sort of fantasy <laughs> legal stuff. So. Uh, yeah. All right, so um, the big event uh, the season with spring comes the NCAA basketball tournament. I don't have to tell you. Well, you do, because like many things, because it didn't happen last year, I've kind of forgotten all about it. You know, usually my mom and I are on the edge of our seats. Well, you're going to be ready for. Listen, this is your mom and you are in for a big time because this is going to be the real deal. You're going to have all these games like you have in a normal NCAA tournament. And you know, it's like every Tuesday and Thursday and Saturday and Sunday. And then it's every Thursday, every Saturday. It's, It's a lot of basketball games that are going to be played. Uh, All right. You think it will be as much fun as usual? Yeah, you have to get. We have to get you into a pool. You see, so there's going to be pools. So let me let me explain what's going to be different first. Okay, what's going to be different is they're going to play the whole tournament in in Indiana, and mm-hmm. this is because of COVID. All right, and uh, as a matter of fact, there'll be a central arena in Indianapolis where the big games are going to be played as they get down to the stretch. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, that makes sense. And you might say to yourself, well, isn't that going to lose something? Uh, matter of fact, isn't the fact that you're going to have no stand- fans in the stands going to lose something? And most people will say, yeah, yeah, it's going to be really too bad. But you know, the truth is, it's not going to lose anything, at least not in the first few rounds. Because what people forget about the NCAA tournament is they play most of the games uh, far enough away from the hometowns of the schools that are playing in the first few rounds that you don't have that many fans in the stands who are that invested in the game. Mm-hmm. So there are games that are played that, you know... A very close game, first and second round, and the fans don't care all that much. But the moms and dads are there. The moms and dads are there, but they don't make as much noise as 15,000 people really invested. Okay. Uh, and uh, it's set up a little differently. I, I don't know if it's worth going over the details, but it's basically a snake draft, if you know what that is. I have no idea, but don't explain it. Okay. Well, I, I can just tell you, they rank all the teams from 1 to 64, and they match up. one. They go 1, 2, 3, 4, and then 4 plays 5, and 3 plays... Six and two plays seven and one plays eight and then they start again. That that's the way it goes. So uh, and, and what's different about and then there are some rules about they don't want a team playing another the third time and so it it gets modified just a little bit. But the idea is to have as fair a ranking system as you possibly can. In any event, if you're going to go into the pool and I know you have are waiting to put twenty dollars on this, uh, there are sites available that will tell you who you should bet upon and they have their own. You know, algorithms that say who's best. I think the best one is something called uh, Ken Palm. 
and uh, it's very complicated uh, formulas, but uh, the results are clear. He ranks all the team, and you can just follow those rankings and pick your teams. And then you just pick somebody who's not in the first two or three who you're going to hang your hat on to win. That's the way you do it. So you strict, you go by someone's algorithm, and then when it gets to the end, what you're picking is, you, let's say you say, you know something, i got a funny feeling that Oklahoma State's going to win because they have the best player in the country and he's a guard. Uh, and you hang your hat on that. And if Oklahoma State wins, you're a genius. This is not how I do it. Okay, how do you how do it? How I do it is I watch games. Oh, really? And for some reason, you get you fall in love with one team. Okay. Right? And then you just stick by that team. All right. Okay, based on, could be based on anything. All right. You know, a commercial you saw. <laughs> just well, you watch games. Listen, you're ahead the way of his me. parents are cheering for one particular guy on one on team. Listen, if you're watching, how the coach seems to really, you know, it could be any silly thing. But it seems to me you you have a team or two that uh, you become uh, sort of devoted to, and that's who I'll root for. Listen, and I, you know, if you're doing it and watching games, who am I going to be a pool with? I'll, the bunny rabbits? I'll get you the deer. <laughs> you know. We're out in the country here. Yeah, okay. You know, I'm not, I'm not at work. I'm I've, not at my workstation. I have connections. Getting in the uh, pool. But, you know, if you're, you're going to base it on watching the teams, you're way ahead of me. I can't tell you how many years I've Are used people, this. like, filling out bracket sheets? N- not yet, but I think they will be. Uh, you don't jump. You, you, tomorrow is when you'll get the invitations to brackets. I'll send you one. But my point is this. I, you know, it, it, it's admirable that you watch the teams. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a pool and we get, you know, the, the critical games in the semis. And I'm seeing for the first time a team that I've picked to win the tournament. And I watch them for five minutes. I say, this team stinks. How did I pick this team? Well, I never watched them. I don't have that problem. You don't have that problem. You're right. All right. But I don't, uh, you know, I'm not in a pool like you. Right. Go ahead. All right. So, um, allons-y à Paris. Mm. Let's do the whole next one in French. Go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 no. no, no, no. Uh, I mean, I've watched a lot of Call My Agent, but I'm not there yet. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, museum update. Ding, ding, ding. Paint job in a Louvre gallery leads to a lawsuit. Okay. So, that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, a lawsuit. That's um, great. Uh, and uh, how, to, how? what's going on there? Well, it turns out in the... Um, Salle de Bronze, mm-hmm. the Greek uh, uh, galleries in the um, Louvre, has actually a ceiling mural mm-hmm. that was designed by the 20th century uh, artist Cy Twombly hmm. before he died. Right. Like the year before he died, died in uh, 2011. Right. And um, so it's... Uh, been there since 2010, and uh, the uh, Louvre decided to repaint the walls. You know, mm-hmm. the walls, the murals on the ceiling. Right. Okay. And they changed the color of the walls. Well, even before it was unveiled to the public, word leaked out to the Cy Twombly Foundation in uh, the United States. You know how artists have like an official right. um, organization that... So uh, say it's an official, to be an official care of, or not. Yeah, yeah right. Um, of the, uh, uh, the work. Right. And uh, they were outraged. Really? They got someone, they got a text with a picture of these new colors. They were outraged that uh, they were not consulted. 
you know, and but they uh, weren't painting over the Sai Chuangui. They weren't okay, this, this, and the this, foundation this, this, never involved before. Only Sai Chuangui yeah. was involved, and he didn't he didn't paint it. He designed it, and you know, other people painted it, yeah. etc. Um, but uh, it, here's the lawyer, I and mean, you know how we love lawyers. Here's what the lawyer David Baum uh, said for the foundation: "It's offensive. Why wouldn't you at least tell us?" For this to come via text message with a picture when everything is done, we hit the roof. Mm. Okay? Hit the roof. Um, hit the ceiling. So they're yeah. quite upset. Meanwhile, the Louvre is thinking, why would we even tell them? You know, right. uh, what do they have to do with anything? Uh, meanwhile, um, they, you know, there are suspicions that there's more to this story. And uh, I'm not even sure what it could possibly be. But some people think it's rather suspicious that you would be repainting the walls after only 10 years. Why is that suspicious? I don't, I don't even know. I can't tell you. I would think in any public place, yeah. uh, walls can suffer a lot in 10 years. Yeah. Um, even though you're probably not allowed to touch them. Uh, anyway, the new walls, you know, they have like this deep, I don't know if it's black or super charcoal gray and red, fine, in the newspaper. But, uh, you know, there are, there are critics uh, um, in the French news who are saying uh, it uh, now looks somewhat like a pizzeria. Huh. You know how they hate the uh, Italians. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, so who knows what's really going on? Um Certain colleagues in historic monuments will never work with contemporary art again. What signal is the Cy Twombly Foundation sending, uh, says uh, the Louvre president. So this uh, this strikes me as a kind of a tempest in a teapot. But, yeah, uh, yeah you know, um, and, and of course, the usual remarks, right? What? You wouldn't, uh, you know, repaint the Sistine Chapel, you know. Uh, blah, 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 blah. And of course, everybody said, well, Cy Twombly is not Michelangelo. That's uh, true. It's true. Uh, all right. Well, but so, you know, when you go to the Louvre next, no. uh, look for that. Yeah. I think it's actually kind of a nice mural. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of abstract. It has, uh, you know, names of Greek okay. artists in Greek on, on the ceiling with uh, some circles. On, uh, I, I like it. All right. Well, no one's painting over it. So you, you got nothing to worry about there. It's just the surrounding colors that I guess they're worried about. Um, Ministry of Supply. So Ministry of Supply. Granger brought me bought me a shirt. How many years ago by now? Eight years ago, let's say. Oh, more than that. Yeah. And it was the greatest shirt you ever got. It still is. I still have it. Yeah, well, so it, it doesn't. It, we have to explain. It doesn't quite look as fabulous as what you could do anything to that shirt. And you have, okay? So, <laughs> yeah, looks, I mean, you are the guy well, it, because, with the world's, you know, um, sweatiest commute. Yeah. And uh, nonetheless, whenever you wore that shirt, by the end of the day, you still looked fresh as a daisy. That's me. It was a miracle material, and I assume it was comfortable. It wasn't like you were, you know, it... It's very comfortable. And, it's, 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 well, and, it, yeah, and look per- perfectly dressy. You know, yeah. it was a button-down shirt that a lawyer could wear to work. And that a lawyer of a certain age could wear to work. All right, take it easy. With, without, just, uh, you know, looking like... You um, made your point. Right. Okay. Yeah, but, but my point is... So Ministry of Supply was founded by a group of graduates of MIT who said to themselves, if we use space aids fabrics, and they meant it literally, clothes with NASA-engineered materials, 
mm-hmm. and uh, treated in such a way. We're going to have something that looks like a crisp dress shirt uh, and maybe even crisp dress pants, but it'll be light and comfortable at the same time. and It will last for a long time and it won't wrinkle. Sounds too good to be true. Uh, it was. And some of their clothes were more successful than others, but uh, the truth well, is, it's yeah, very interesting stuff. I think their demographic was uh, younger than and, you. So there's, uh, there's a different kind of fit going well, but, on. But, but, but anyway, they were making suits. They were making... You know something? What you're saying is true. What you're saying is true. Because you, you couldn't... Well, let's start with the shirts. The shirts are the most successful item. Uh, they're good. And now they charge a lot for them. They charge 125 bucks for them. But, but in any event, they did everything that you just described. Okay, once they did a pair of pants, you say, no one's going to think those are wool pants. All right. It just didn't look that way. Right. But they probably I think they look fine. Maybe for younger demographics. Yes. And then they made jackets and suits and that just looked not like what you would call well, a suit to your or jacket. Eye, but I'm not. Okay. I'm not sure that's true. But the point is, I thought it was interesting. Yeah. It was that anyone was trying to make right. formal office attire. And they were copied. Comfortable right. and durable. Right. And, you know, you know, because for years people was, have been saying, well, no one's going to wear uh, suits to the office right. anymore. That's uh, that's uh, gone. And they were copied by companies which called them like tech shirts or stuff like right. that. And, um, uh, and so it, it was. In any event. So here's what happened. Their star was rising. Their star was rising. They were building they all were these great stores. Funds. They had two years in a row of 40% growth. They took in $14 million of sales and they made their huge investment for the future when in February of 2020. They committed all this money to uh, creating new inventory. They were opening new stores in March 2020. They, a bunch of cupcakes were brought in for the store opening in the middle of March. And the next day, the pandemic shut everything down and they've been closed down for a year. So but it's not just the, I mean, what? The pandemic shut everything down, but. Mainly what shut down was the concept of ever wearing a suit Great. again. Dress clothes. Well, okay. shut down, No yes. one is going to... On the first level, their stores shut down, but you were right. The, the bigger the point stores is... Stores were closed, but it didn't matter. Even even if you were ordering online, right. no one wanted to order these things online anymore. They don't need it. Maybe they could use the shirt, but uh, not even really. The, because yeah. the shirt you're going to wear for, you know, the five minutes of the Zoom call. They're not bad for Zoom calls. But, but, but the, the point is that... Uh, they had to do exactly what you suggest they'd have to do. They had to redo their entire approach for uh, a, uh, a society which no longer valued dress clothes the way they did in the past. They were imitating dress clothes before, and now they're not doing that. They're coming up with something they call hybrid. So what they did was they changed some of the styling. Some of the dress pants became joggers, if that's the right phrase, or pants that taper very much toward the, toward the bottom, and they fit with sneakers as well as shoes. They... They redid their catalogs. They took the word dress out of everything. The dress shirts weren't dress shirts now. They're hybrid shirts. And uh, they made other... Well, they know, had to rework their product line. They did it completely. And they, but they held off on doing that until August because they kept thinking well, it's going to turn around. The pandemic is going to be over. Well, then they gave up. Yeah, so well, but everybody was in... Uh, right. A lot of people were in that boat. This is going to be over in a couple weeks. You know, this is going to be over in eight weeks. Yeah. This is going to be over in a year. Right. You know? So they... Uh, and. So they're really reaching the end of the rope now. And the question is, are they going to make it? It uh, looks like we have the light at the end of the tunnel. And whenever they get a call from investors, they're saying, are you guys going out of business? Because you were the kind of business that would go out of business. They say, no, we think we're just going to make it, but we need new investment. So they're close and they're optimistic that they have the right product line, the right catalogs, and they're just going to explode when things start opening in a month or two. 
What a what a catastrophe. Yes, it's right? a you catastrophe. Know, I mean, it's so and, crazy that you you've uh, developed and, this product, right? And you've developed a following, and the sky's the limit, and then. Boom! Yeah, they're the perfect. They hit, hit the perfect storm. They had the absolute wrong product at exactly the wrong time, and yet they might make it. Uh, but they're. It's interesting to read their description how they go from the penthouse to the outhouse just like that. But yeah. they might be the one that survives. So we'll see. I look forward to it. All right, Ministry of Supply. Yes. Um, kind of the um, opposite of that. Here's something that flourished. Yeah. Oh, really? During the pandemic? Because of the pandemic. Yeah. And that is a uh, television series called Gardner, Gardner's World. Mm-hmm. And it's a BBC thing. And it's been going on for years, like 54 seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's uh, at, at the moment hosted by Monty Don, who's a former um, jewelry designer mm-hmm. salesman right. and uh is now a gardener mm-hmm. uh, due to changes in his life and um people love it really people love it gardener's world and uh, you know it starts when the season starts right. you know the beginning of march mm-hmm. and uh it starts with the shorter episodes because there's not much going on in the garden mm-hmm. in march and gets longer and longer. And uh, they have segments where they visit other gardens. Uh, Monty uh, shows you how to do things, uh, shows you how to start seeds, shows you how to prune, etc. Walking around his fabulous uh, garden setup. And uh, at the end, you even get a list of uh, chores, assignments that you should be doing this weekend. Really? Yeah. Um, so now it's not just for, we know that the Brits love gardening, Mm -hmm. right? That's Mm -hmm. not, but this is like worldwide and, uh, especially in the U S U S is wild about it. And it's not even just for people who garden. I mean, a lot of people watching it don't garden, uh, will never garden, but people find it very relaxing. Uh Okay. Um, and, uh, also uh, what does it say? Twenty nine minutes of televisual sedation. Okay, he's got these adorable dogs. Yeah. And they're always close ups of the dog just lying there, uh, being uh, you know peaceful and wonderful and adorable. And um, it really seems to give people hope because you know it points towards future. It points towards you put things in the dirt. Okay. And it grows and becomes beautiful um, no matter what. Nature keeps cranking along no matter what kind so, of... So this is a streaming on some channel, I, I suppose. But... You can get it on YouTube. Uh, you can, I guess you can watch the um, episodes live you know, when they uh, mm-hmm. come on the BBC. Okay. Right? But I, I've watched a couple episodes. Oh, you have watched it? On, uh, just on YouTube. Mm-hmm. You get them. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, He's really quite good. He's engaging. He's, you know, interesting. The, the scenery is beautiful. Yeah. And so uh, it, it can do both. It can inspire you to do your own gardening. Yes. And, of course, in the article in the New York Times, they have examples of, you know, 
various people who have moved out of the city and bought, you know, a suburban house with a plot right. of land so just so they can start gardening. So that's what you were watching this morning when I came by and I interrupted you, right? Right. All right. So that's so this is the trick with these wireless headphone things you've got, those buds. There's no way of knowing that you're watching something because I don't see any cords. I'm not even going to discuss this with you. You are so oblivious. <laughs> really? Yeah. Really? I don't know. I think the wireless headphones are just throwing me off. I don't think it's hard, that hard to spot when somebody is streaming something. Oh, really? No. You'd be surprised. So uh, this was really uh, interesting to me. A fellow named Alexander Doba, as the Times describes him, the oldest kayaker to conquer the Atlantic, dies at 74. And this is just a remarkable guy, remarkable person. He's Polish. Um, and his most recent accomplishment, he's an adventurer. And his most recent accomplishment was at the age of 70, uh, while subsisting, as they say in the article, on his wife's fortifying plum jam, paddled across the Atlantic in a kayak. How's that? Okay. Well, it's impressive. Impressive it, for anybody. It, anyway, you know what? There are plenty of people who do very impressive uh, things. Uh, wait a second, Tamsin. There's more. There's more. First of all, this is the third time he paddled across the Atlantic. Uh, and, um, he, uh, and it's quite a, uh, harrowing, uh, there are all kinds of things that happen to him as he goes across the Atlantic. It's 110 days at least, or it's even longer than that. I don't guess they have, I don't even know what the final total is, but it's a long trip. And they give more details here. Along with his wife's plum jam, he subsisted on freeze-dried goulash and porridge, chocolate bars, and homemade wine. Okay, not exactly space-age material, not the kind of thing the Ministry of Supply would have sent them. As a matter of fact, they say, after his saltwater-drenched clothes became too irritating, he navigated the rest of his trip buck-naked. Because right. the clothes, again, not Ministry of Supply. Um, he slept in a tiny cabin that he entered by sliding through a portal, and when flying fish landed on his deck, he snacked on them alive. Very fine, he said. Better than sushi. sushi. Yes, yes, yes. Um, D Y I sushi. Yes, D Y I sushi. Grab the fish yes. and bite into it. Right, and mm -hmm. so, and, and on top of everything else, I mean, well, they have his son quoting that you know when they used to go during Christmas time, would go to visit the in-laws. Here's a quote from his son. He wasn't a man who necessarily looked forward to spending Christmas with the family on the way to my grandmother's house. For the holidays, he wanted to drop off on a river, and asked us to pick him on the pick him up on the way back. Um, but anyway, so he seems uh, indomitable. Indomitable, and how so, did he die? Well, this is what happened. He died at the age of seventy-four. He decided to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, for which he trained uh, by logging, excuse me, jogging up and down the stairs of a high-rise building with a heavy backpack. Mm -hmm. And he took long daily hikes. He went on his Kilimanjaro trip just very recently. And uh, he got to the summit. He was with two guides. He sat down to rest, closed his eyes, fell asleep, and died of a pulmonary edema. Um, and his son said, you know something? He always told us he didn't want to die in bed. This was a fitting death for him. This is the way he would have wanted to go. But it's almost poetic. I mean, you have this guy who's taking these heroic uh, trips across the ocean, and he keeps challenging himself. And at the age of 74, he climbs an extremely high mountain with extremely thin air and just sits down and passes. 
No? Lyrical? I guess. All right. You don't seem carried well, away sad, by this. sad, but uh, yeah. I mean, uh, extraordinary life. Yeah. All right. Well, you don't yeah. see that every day here. No, you don't. Um, speaking of high. Yeah. Getting to the bottom of the runner's high. An article written by Gretchen Reynolds in the New York Times. Yeah. So did you ever have, did you ever experience the runner's you know, high? I don't know. It's a floaty euphoria huh. that you can only get apparently when you've been running like a half an hour or I, something. Okay. I've done a lot of Never running. Never going to happen. <laughs> Look, I've done a lot of running in the past. Many times and most times more than a half hour. And I don't remember getting a floating uh, I never felt floaty at all. <laughs> and uh, I ran in my 20s, yeah. maybe a little bit in my 30s. And at a certain point, I switched to cycling yeah. and swimming. And, well, you, uh, you might still get it then. Nonetheless, I, I don't remember ever liking one moment yeah. of running, you know. Uh, truly, I'm not built for speed. Well, let's, let's let's dig down on this a little bit. Then I'll explain to you how you're going to get this euphoria. But go ahead. Okay. Um, all right. So it turns out you know, people have always, people since the 80s yeah. have been associating this with the... the um, with endorphins. Endorphins. Right. Okay. Which are basically, um, you know, uh, how would you describe it? Kind of... Um, uh, painkillers, internally produced painkillers right, in, in your body. Right. Okay. Turns out they're wrong. Okay. It's, it's not, not endorphins. endorphins. No. You know, all this time we've spent right. trying to drugs. awake the endor- endorphins. Endorphins, it turns out, cannot cross the blood-brain barrier because of their molecular structure. That's what I always suspect. Yes. So even if runner's blood contains extra endorphins, they will not reach the brain so and the, alter mental states. So what alters your mental state? It is, they believe, the endocannabinoids. Cannabis. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Similar in chemical structure to cannabis, the cannabinoids made by our body yeah. surge in number during pleasant activities such as orgasms. And also, when we run, I knew you'd slip studies that word in here somewhere. Yeah. They can cross yeah. the blood-brain barrier too, making them viable candidates to cause runner's high. So then, then the article goes on to say there are various, um, you know, studies that have been done. One, okay, uh, compared um, dogs and people, okay. And uh, ferrets, mm. uh, as when they're running, and um, what happens here is that uh, oh well, they were able to ascertain that dogs and people, well, dogs and people are, this is an interesting word, cursorial, meaning possessed of bones and muscles, well adapted to distance running. You see, I'm not cursorial. Okay, All right. that's what it is. But here's my and question. ferrets are not. So they. Turns out ferrets never get a runner's high. Yeah. Okay, but dogs and people right. apparently but, do. But, but they could, why, they could spot it by question. the release of Can these. I get to my question? No, I'm not finished with this. No, okay. Ahead. All right. Yeah. So anyway, and they tested mice. They were able they were able to turn off the um, endorphins. Endorphins. Right. Okay. And uh, they um, had the mice run. Yeah. And they still experienced 
the runner's high. So it's the cannabinoids, right? Uh, with the right. without the endorphins, right? So, okay, no, and they're right. trying to test that yeah. on people now. Uh, make a long story short, they um, turns out you don't get runner's high when you walk. Right, but that's still not my question. Is this? Why don't you get it when you swim? I mean, you do a lot of swimming. It seems to me it's the same the same potential. For well, doing here's it. the interesting thing. Yeah. Of course, the most fun thing about articles like this in the New York Times is the comments yeah. online. Yeah. You know? Okay. And there were zillions of comments, and some people did say, "I get that when I swim." Sure. It's not quite the same. Yeah. But it's very and and I feel that's true. I feel if I have a good swim, I am I re- come out in a zen like state. Right. Right. Um, but I don't know why you wouldn't get it with. Other kinds of exercise. Well, but, but the intensity of the swimming strikes me as similar enough to the running that it would work. And I, I can tell you from my own swimming, which in my case is always intense because I'm struggling, uh, I, I believe I, I'm closer to getting that feeling when I'm swimming than when I'm running because you know the unpleasantness of running, which is the uh, impact. But I wonder if, uh, you know, they make it clear that you have to run a while to get it. Yeah, sure. So I wonder how long you have to... Yeah, look, now that you mentioned it, I will say in some of my longer runs, sometimes you say to myself, you know, this is crazy. I'm feeling good at six miles or something. And because you get into some kind of zone. I And that even can have, happen to me on the rowing machine, honestly. I mean, remember I said to you at one point, I feel the next... If I do a 30-minute piece, the second 15 minutes is easier than the first 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what's going on. So that's a rower's high. It's a rower's high. Yes. Well, it's interesting to me that we have the capacity within our own bodies to have the, you know, cannabis experience. Yeah, well, it's, uh, and now we can talk about it because it's legal. Uh, previously, Well, that's the whole THC yeah. thing. Yes. CBD was always... Well, but the, the cannabis, cannabis is not CBD. Cannabis is the real deal, isn't it? Well, let's, let's not go back to that. I, but I think that's it is. It's way too complicated for me. All right. Well, I think cannabis is uh, what marijuana is all about. So, um... Cannabinoids. Cannabinoids. I like that word. It's a fun word to say. I'm going to use it. I use it. Well, endocannabinoids is gilding the lily as far as I'm concerned. But uh, keep a watch out. Cannabinoid sounds them. like an episode of uh, you know Lost in Space or something. Uh, Marvin Hagler died. So Marvin Hagler was a great fighter, a great middleweight champion, one of the ultimate uh, fighters. I mean, one of the top fighters. And a couple of interesting things about uh, Marvin Hagler. I was reminded of when I read a few obituaries. Um, he, uh, he was the middleweight champion for some years at a time that there were some great middleweights, uh, his, um, and people paid attention to the sport, frankly, uh, and his, uh, most famous fight and people continue to regard this as the greatest fight of all time. People who care about boxing was a fight he had with Thomas Hearns, which lasted all of eight minutes. And what happened in that fight, frankly, Thomas Hearns, they were both attackers. They were both very aggressive fighters. They weren't defensive fighters. They weren't artful. They were uh, brutal. And they really went at it quite a bit, especially since in the third round, uh, Hearns opened up, uh, he was called uh, Thomas Hitman Hearns, opened up a cut on Hagler's forehead. And the referee uh, pulled Hagler aside. He's thinking about stopping the fight. He says, can you see? And Hagler says, I seem to be finding that guy pretty well, don't you think? And, <laughs> and the referee let him go on. And 30 seconds later, he knocked Hearns out. Mm. So it ended in the third round. And it, there was so much action in that fight that people do call it the greatest fight of all time. Hagler adopted the name. Um, I mean, a tough upbringing. He came up from Newark and he went to Brockton, Massachusetts. Uh, 
And uh, he adopted the name Marvelous, Marvelous Marvin Hagler. And sometimes the ring announcer wouldn't use Marvelous, so he formally changed his name to Marvelous, Marvin Hagler. So they had to say, so they had to say uh, Marvelous. And the thing that I had forgotten about Hagler, which is true, was his, his, his ascent, if you will, was kind of delayed. Because people, this often happens if a fighter is kind of dangerous, people don't want to fight him. So it's hard to get a fight and it's hard to move up in the ranks. But the particular thing with Hagler was, he was a lefty. He was a southpaw. Mm-hmm. And I remember this going back, talking to my father about fighting. No one wants to fight a southpaw. And you would get it at any level, a medium level, even high level. Uh, promoters would have a tough time booking a fight with a southpaw because it's awkward to try to go against a different style. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't get fights. But ultimately, he managed to get the fights and uh, became marvelous Marvin Hagler. He lost a couple of fights at the beginning, so he's never undefeated. And he lost his last fight, famously to Sugar Ray Leonard, who came out of retirement to fight, to fight Hagler. That was a very much, uh, very famous fight, but it was uh, more tactical than the one against Hearns. And the decision went to Leonard, and Hagler thought he was robbed, and he never fought again. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he passed away at 66. All right, so another high-flying achiever. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Carla Walenda, sure-footed member of High Wire Act, is dead at 85. Mm-hmm. Okay, so of course we've all, I think, heard of the Flying Walendas. That's right. And uh, she, um, let's see, she was the daughter of Carl Walenda, right. who founded the Flying Walendas. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, he and his wife were, uh, you know, an acrobatic high wire act in Aer- circuses. Right. Aerials, I mean, when right. she. When she was born, okay, she uh, she made her high wire debut when she was just six weeks old. My mother, ro- my father rode the bicycle. My mother sat on his shoulders, holding me and introducing me to the public on, on a high wire. Great. Okay, <laughs> and uh, then they have pictures of her like learning to be learning to do the high wire when she's a toddler. Etc. And uh, she, um, you know, begins touring with her family at a very young age. And uh, so they have the whole family troupe. Mm -hmm. And what struck me um, about the whole article is just all the people in her family who died. Yeah, so they, uh, as a result yeah, of accidents, it, it, it's crazy. In, in this, uh, they do these and, crazy stunts, and, and people and do say, fall and get killed. Yes, yes. So why is it so appealing? Why? I don't know. But her because article that she talks about all the relatives she lost. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In 1965, three of her relatives were killed, and her brother was paralyzed. Right. Okay? Um, her aunt uh, fell to her death in uh, the early 60s. Her husband, Chico, died in 1972 um, after his pole struck a live electrical Wire. Great. Uh, his fa- her father, Carl Walenda, fell to his death in 1978, walking a hundred feet high between two towers of a hotel in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and that's in 1978. Okay, she was born. I didn't look this up, but she was born in 1936. Yeah. Right. So, assuming her dad was. 
I don't know, about 20 when she was born. Yeah. Okay. So he was in his 70s. Yeah. He's in his 70s, right. 100 feet up in the well, air. Well, they said she was doing something. She was 82. They said she, she's still performing in her 80s. Yeah. Okay. And her big, uh, her signature thing was a headstand, 100 feet in the air yeah. on, on a pole. Well, here's the funny thing about it. They said it was 100 feet in the air, but as she got older, they lowered it to 65 feet. Which is still Oh, I'm saying something. What does that do for you? I mean, okay. you're still be doing the headstand. You think 65 feet, you're not going to die if you fall off? I mean, it's just, but she said, you can die doing anything. Accidents can happen anywhere. I have to make a living. This is the only way I know or want to. I've done waitress work and hated every minute. Why should I go and do a job I hate? The only reason I could think of that they shortened it from 100 feet to 65 feet when she got older is because she couldn't climb the stairs to go up to 100 feet. And then yet she she's on the high wire. So anyway, she has a famous nephew, Nick Walenda, yeah. who uh, gained fame by traversing Niagara Falls and the Grand Canyon and stuff like that. And uh, people would say, uh, are you related to him? And she would say, no, he's related to me. Yeah. You know? Well, you and uh, it's funny because you notice that uh, in uh, a column in the Wall Street Journal today, in the magazine section, where the Wall Street Journal, at, it's called the Soapbox. Uh, and they ask uh, six luminaries to weigh in on a single topic. This month, balance. One of the uh, luminaries was indeed Nick, Nick Melinda. Who recounts a horrific story about losing relatives on, on the high wire. Uh, yeah, and that, and that he is calm. Yeah, he remains calm at all times. The secret to, is to remain calm. <laughs> Good. Okay, well, duly noted. <laughs> well, it was about balance. How do you remain calm? All right. So the final thing is about this fellow Alan McDonald who passed away. He was a um, an engineer with Morton Theocall, and Morton Theocall was a a uh, an important engineer nearing firm that worked on the uh, space shuttle. Um, and this is just an amazing story to me. Uh, and I didn't know it. That's the other thing about it. It, it. It's an amazing story. And how did we not know this? And here's the story. We all know the Challenger Space Shuttle. Famously, the one that had the teacher, Krista McAuliffe, on it. The first uh, civilian to go into space. And, and so every second grader is watching this space launch, you know, in 1986 or something like that. I forget what year it is. But in any event... Um, yeah, 1986. Uh, and it goes up in the air and the rocket within 10 seconds explodes. Everybody dies. And and it was just a terrible tragedy. And within a year or two, the space program was kind of diminished substantially. Um, well, here's a story that I never heard. Um, the uh, Before the launch, the, the night before the launch, this fella, Al McDonald, was talking to anybody who would listen, including everyone at Morton Theocall and the folks at NASA, trying to stop the launch because he said it would be unsafe because the shuttled rockets contained a series of rubber O-ring gaskets. Now, I remember hearing about the O-rings. We knew that. And he said that low temperatures could cause them to stiffen, which would allow fuel to escape and cause the rocket to explode. Uh, And why was this an issue? Because the temperature before the launch was 18 degrees. And he said, this is too dangerous. You can't do it. And apparently, he was by the side of the launch uh, in uh, Florida. And uh, his, his group was out in Utah, which is apparently where Morton Theocall is. And the way the protocol was that NASA needed the sign-off 
from the Morton Theocall engineers to do the launch. And his group of engineers were backing him up and not signing off the night before the launch, which I never heard this. And then there was all kinds of pressure put on them, apparently, from the higher-ups at Morton Theocall, from the folks at NASA, and eventually uh, they gave the consent. He didn't. He didn't. But his group did. He was uh, overruled by Mm -hmm. a higher-up at Morton Theocall. They said, go ahead. They shot the rocket. It exploded, and everybody on the rocket died. Uh, crazy. I, I never heard this story. And then what makes what compounds it is, apparently there was uh, an investigation, no surprise, and Reagan appoints a panel, which is headed up by William Rogers, the former Secretary of State, and there's all these important people on it, including Richard Feynman, Neil Armstrong, of course, who was the first on the moon, and Sally Ride, who was a very well-known woman astronaut at the time. And apparently they had the hearing, and during the hearing, at a certain point, um, uh, they get to this point about the O-rings. And Sally Ride asks the fella who oversaw the booster rockets whether there was any kind of dissent about going forward because of any O-ring issue. She's trying to get to the bottom of it. And he says, well, there was some questions, but uh, people were made comfortable that it wasn't really a problem. And this guy, Alan McDonald, stands up, and according to the Times, trembling, and says that's not the whole story. And tells the whole group the whole story, which is that he and others said, no, don't send the launch up, that these O-rings are not going to make it. Uh, and that would have saved people. And they just stopped the hearing. They cleared the room. According to the Times, Sally Ride was in tears. He was in tears. They had a big hug. Uh, and the report came out quite damning. Uh, I never heard about this. Mm-hmm. And it's not like anyone had to tell me about it, but you would think you might have picked up on this. It sounds like a big well, story. those were crazy years for us. Well, the maybe. The 80s. I don't... Okay. You, know, you were well, working ask very around. hard, and uh, we had like a million children. Well, in any event, the rest of the story is kind of as you'd expect. So what happens? What happens is that the, the program is kind of shut down to some degree, the space program. And as for uh, McDonald, he gets demoted. From Norton Theocall. And eventually someone intervenes and has his position uh, restored. But even so, he's never given any important projects and his career is kind of stunted. No one wanted to hear from him anymore in Norton Theocall. And that was that. Mm. So that's kind of a fascinating story. Yeah. A fascinating story. Yeah. All right. So we'll end on that uh, for this week. And uh, let's get ready to enjoy the extra hour attempt. Okay, do you have plans for that? Uh, well, we'll talk You've about got it some later. ideas? I think. All right, this is Tamsin Gurdjieff. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan reading the paper again. We'll be back. See you then next week.